Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. I was sitting down to a nice meal with my wife the other day, and she asked me a provocative question. How can we enjoy this food, she said, given what's going on over in Ukraine? I suspect this may be the type of question that possibly crossed your mind recently, or to put it another way, as somebody asked me on Twitter recently, and I'm paraphrasing here, how do I meditate when it seems like the world is falling apart? We're going to address these questions today and more. How do we titrate our news consumption? What do we do with our fears about World War III? How can we do anything constructive to help, given how far away many of us are from the action? And why are so many people so upset about Ukraine when they weren't paying much attention to wars raging in places such as Syria, Yemen, or Ethiopia? My guest today is perhaps uniquely qualified to answer these questions given his experience in combat. And in turn, he's going to pose an extremely provocative question to you. Are you ready to look at your own internal Vladimir Putin? Claude Anshin Thomas is an ordained monk in the Japanese Soto Zen tradition. At the age of 17, he signed up to fight in Vietnam and spent two years on active duty. He came home with an undiagnosed case of PTSD and spent years grappling with addiction and homelessness before he was introduced to Buddhism. He says meditation can help all of us look at the roots of war and violence that we all harbor. In other words, we all have an inner Vladimir Putin, and maybe we should start there. Claude Anshin is now the founder of the Zaltho Foundation, dedicated to addressing the causes and consequences of violence in and among individuals, families, and societies. He has served in war zones, hospitals, schools, and prisons, as well as led meditation retreats at the sites of war and suffering. He's also worked with gang members, guerrillas, and refugees. And he's the author of an award-winning book called At Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. In this conversation, we address all the questions I raised at the top. Plus, we talk about the narcotic effect of war, how Buddhism helped Claude Anshin be at peace with what he calls his own unpeacefulness, and yet why to this day he has to reckon with his own impulses toward violence, and why he does not believe there is such a thing as a just war. Heads up, this episode may not be easy listening. We're going to talk about war, violence, suicide, and substance abuse, but it's all pretty vital and important. So I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. We'll get started with Claude Anshin Thomas right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, Families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. 
And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. Highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Claude Anshin Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks. You have such an extraordinary story and I want to talk about it. I'm thinking, though, that perhaps it would be best to start by meeting what I suspect are the acute needs of people listening who may be struggling, as I am, to absorb all of these horrific images coming out of Ukraine. And I'm just wondering, if you're okay starting there, what kind of practical advice you would give to us? First, let me say I'm not in the advice-giving business. I understand the dilemma, and I've given some thought because people have asked me this question. What I make an effort to communicate with people is is that, unfortunately, I know my way around a war zone, both as a combatant and as a non-combatant. I spent a significant amount of time in the Balkans when the fighting was going on there. What I can say is that war... And the images of war have almost a narcotic effect. There's a book that I read back a couple years ago. The title of that book is War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. And in that book, there was a a statement that just resonated so profoundly with me, and that's the narcotic of war and violence. And so it requires a great deal of discipline to not get sucked into the images that are constantly being thrust at us. I also share with people as best that I can, the information that the images that we see are not the entire picture. What's happening in Ukraine is horrible, but let us not be distracted from the other wars that are happening around the world and the the war that's happening on the streets in this country. So let's not be distracted by that. Now, all of that being said, without a disciplined spiritual practice rooted in self-reflection, And it's very easy to get caught up in the obsession and compulsion that drives us to be glued to the television or to be online and following the various threads of photos and YouTube videos and all of this sort of thing. Um, If we don't want to be overwhelmed by that, it's important that we keep ourselves informed. But without a disciplined commitment, we'll get lost in that. So I just encourage people as much as I can, exercising some self-discipline and just be cautious about the seduction, the narcotic of this reality. I read that book that you referenced, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. It's by a former combat correspondent whose name I'm currently forgetting. Chris Hedges. Thank you. And I read it after I spent many years covering combat as a young, ambitious news correspondent. And that war is a drug line really resonated with me because... I got hooked on the adrenaline of being in war zones and then came home and got depressed and started self-medicating with recreational drugs to give me a little bit of a synthetic squirt of that adrenaline I was experiencing in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So I get it, I think, on a pretty cellular level. And I do think it applies for the vast majority of people listening, I suspect, who may not have had any experience in a war zone. I do think it applies to the mere consumption of the images. And just to state it back to you, it seems like notwithstanding the fact that you're not in the advice-giving business, one thing you would suggest for us to keep in mind is to walk the line between staying informed and getting obsessed. Yes, I think the images and the, the drumbeat of war creates the circumstances of obsession and compulsion. The obsession to consume more and more and more images I would say the the obsession to go into the image and then the compulsion to consume more and more of them. And with the notion that I'm somehow informing myself about what's going on there, and I'm only informing myself at the smallest little bit of what's going on there. What I do say to people directly is that one of the things that can support us in establishing some discipline around this topic to not be consumed by is like the first thing we do when we get up in the morning is make the bed like we never slept in it, then sit for five minutes. 
It doesn't matter how long we sit, but it matters that we sit and with the attention and intention that we bring to that process. And I keep things quite simple. I give them the encouragement to sit every morning, first thing, and at the last thing, every night. I also encourage people to connect with a group of like-minded people so that if they find themselves being consumed by whatever thoughts or feelings or perceptions that may arise to the images that we're exposed to, they have someplace that they can go to talk about that in a way that doesn't foster the, the dependence or the compulsion to see more and more and more. So a group of like-minded people is important. A disciplined practice is important. But most importantly is I have to want to do things differently. I'm going to say to talk a little bit about how I think having a practice of mindfulness can help one titrate media consumption or to walk this line between staying informed and getting obsessed or getting hooked. I think that self-awareness that can be generated through certain types of meditation, another word for that might be mindfulness, that self-awareness can help one see when one is leaning in in an obsessive way, spending, you know, I'm on hour three of all caps flaming of Vladimir Putin on Twitter or whatever. And you might just wake up now that you've got the practice of waking up. You might wake up and notice, oh, yeah, yeah, I think at this point I've done all I can do. Maybe I should take a walk, make the bed, sit, etc. Do you agree with what I've just said? Let's put it this way. I wouldn't disagree with what you said. But what I do is I strongly encourage people to start with making the bed and sitting rather than going, oh, this is too much, I better do this now. So rather than wait until I feel out of control, take the steps in advance to establish this sort of disciplined routine that will foster the kind of desire to not get drawn into or foster the awareness that leads to the desire not to go down those rabbit holes. But really at the root of this is a person has to really want to live differently, because if they don't want to, no matter what's said, no matter what's done, it won't happen. We've been talking about this compulsion that many of us might feel vis-a-vis -vis the news coming out of Ukraine or anywhere else where problematic or scary things are happening. I've also noticed in my own mind the opposite reaction, which is not wanting to look too closely, not wanting to engage because it's uh, maybe a self-protective pull toward apathy. Does that land for you? And what do you think about working with that? Well, apathy, for example, myself, I'm not on any social media. I don't have any access to it. I don't want any connection with it. That doesn't mean I'm not informed. I make it a point to check in on different news sources, but I, I read the news. I don't watch the news. And I look at a diversity of news sources, not only domestic news sources, but also news sources outside of the country to get different angles of perception. In truth, I'm not so interested in looking at the various images that come out of the war zone. And I don't consider my not wanting to look at those images as having some sense of apathy regarding the conflict that's going on. Because one of the things that really drew me to Zen practice is that it doesn't matter what I think, say, or believe. It matters what I do. And so how this discipline practice informs me is I'm looking at what's unfolding out in front of us in the Ukraine, but not only the Ukraine, and asking myself the question, okay, what can I do? So the, the Zalto Foundation, which I founded in 93 as a, a nonprofit mechanism to support Vietnam veterans going back to Vietnam, has grown far beyond that initial intention. It also has a, a daughter organization in Europe. And we're in regular contact with people in the Ukraine. There are Zen groups in Kiev and Odessa and some other places. We're in direct contact with them. The members of that Daughter Foundation have opened their homes already to refugees. They're offering their services in the various cities where they live. And we have people who have counseling expertise, so they're offering their services there. And we're asking the people in the Ukraine, we're asking those people, what do they need? How can we help them? I've learned from being in these circumstances as a non-combatant and as an ordained person that I need to sit, I need to listen to what the people have to say to me, and I need to ask them, what do you need? Well, how can I be of support to you? And believe me, they can articulate that. So I'm hearing you say that, yes, it can make sense on some level to work with your own mind vis-a-vis -vis these images and reports coming out of Ukraine, but perhaps the most important thing maybe for yourself and, of course, for other people, is to do something to help. Yes. And when I'm talking about doing something to help, I'm not 
talking about social media posts. I'm not talking about Twitter feeds. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about what can I do real time on the ground to assist, to be a supporter, to be of help in some way regarding the reality of what's unfolding in the Ukraine. But you're in an interesting position because you've got these organizations where you actually, you, Claude Anshin, can be proactive and be helpful. But for many of the rest of us, it can feel helpless. Trust me, I also feel quite helpless and powerless. It's that helplessness and powerlessness is what informs me. Now, for example, there was an article in the New York Times about an outpouring of support that's driven by veterans who are volunteering to go fight. I so understand. I understand and I resonate with this desire. I mean, many of us who come home from serving in combat, there doesn't seem any clarity or purpose in life. And we're looking for some sort of formula to find that. The clarity and purpose we felt in combat doesn't exist outside of combat. I didn't know this about you. You were a war correspondent. So you, you have some grasp of what exactly what I'm talking about. So I understand when they want the, the drive to go back. They also think that, okay, this is a war that has purpose and meaning, different from Afghanistan or Iraq. Their initial reason to enlist in the military, to volunteer to go to fight, was that. There was a purpose there, the defense of democracy, the defense of something. The adventures in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq were something different. All my life, I've wanted to be of service. It was sort of an innate thing with me. It's not some intellectual concept. I just really had this desire to be of service. And when I joined the military, I had the notion that that's what I was doing, that I was being of service to something greater or larger than myself. It's true, and it's not, not true. So... To live with the complexities of looking at what I've been responsible for and then the fact that that never goes away. The images, the feelings, the memories, they, they don't ever go away. I need to learn how to live at peace with this unpeacefulness. Before I came to this realization, it was always about, I need to get rid of this stuff and I need to forget about what happened and get on with my life because that was what I was being conditioned to do. So people who don't have, who feel that they don't have an organization like the Zolto Foundation, they have this sense of powerlessness, this question of well, what can I do? There are places where they can go. There's questions they can ask. And there is, of course, the most important, I think, the most important aspect of this process is to turn the focus to oneself and not myopically to look at the roots of war violence and suffering in us. Because the roots of war, violence, and suffering are not collected, they're individual. War is a collective manifestation of individual suffering. So if we want to do something, we can look, okay, so I feel quite helpless and powerless about Ukraine, but what can I do in my neighborhood? That's not to be apathetic towards what's happening there, but that's the realization that what's happening in my neighborhood is also connected to this overarching reality of war, violence, and suffering. I live in a community, I'm part of a tribe where between 17 and 27 of us kill ourselves every day. Veterans. Yes. And it depends on your source, what the number is. If it was one, it'd be too many. Now, the majority of those suicides are happening between the ages of 50 and 70, according to the Veterans Administration, the last information I had. The 13th of April, 1983, I took a lethal dose of barbiturates. Overdoses were coming closer and closer for me. And it's not because I wanted to die. I just didn't know how to live. I survived that overdose. But while I was in the hospital, three men came to visit me. I have no idea who they were. I had just been removed from intensive care. And one man asked me if I was going to do it again. And I said, absolutely. I mean, death has got to be better than this. And he looked at me and he said, how do you know? It could be worse. What he said at that moment was just exactly the right thing to say. It caught me. And I went, man, worse than this. And that led me to going into an alcohol and drug rehabilitation center and stopping. I stopped getting high in 1983, using alcohol and other drugs, and I stayed stopped. This overarching umbrella of war, violence, and suffering, it doesn't have to continue. If we're willing to wake up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering in us, we have the possibility to transform the overarching view of the inevitability of war, violence, and suffering. We do, it, we're like drips of water on a stone. We get too attached to, if it doesn't happen immediately, I gotta stop doing it. When I see the scenes unfolding in Ukraine, I'm confronted with mixed emotions. 
I know violence is not a solution. I know it. Violence only gets more violence. That being said, there's this, still this piece of me that wants to go, that wants to fight. Right? That's how strong my conditioning is to the notion that violence is a solution at some level. That was the biggest step for me, to give up all of my ideas of how my life was supposed to be. Stop getting high and sit on shut up and allow life to begin to inform me. And like I said, I did not do that alone. I had support in doing that, but I had a real commitment to want to live differently. And eventually that led me to the spiritual practice that I was engaged in for the first six, seven years led me to Zen practice. And Zen practice was like the next step for me. And I can honestly say from my side of the street that this way of living for me is just the best in the world. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that I'm not confused. It doesn't mean that I, I don't feel uncertainty. It doesn't mean that I don't feel powerless. It doesn't mean that I, I'm not confronted by hopelessness. I have all of those feelings, but I'm able to understand that while I have feelings of hopelessness, they will pass. Because in living in relation with the reality of yes and no and right and wrong and good and bad, where there's hopelessness, there's also the opposite of that. Now, I'm cautious to use the word hope because I was conditioned in a military environment that says that we never say hope because hope is expecting someone else to do something for you. So to let go of that notion. The challenge is always how to take the experiences that I receive in the silence and put those into action. Because the process of sitting and cultivating silence doesn't stop when I get up off that cushion or get up off that chair. I say consistently that meditation and daily life aren't two things. How does all that support me in face of what's happening in the Ukraine is that with the commitment to become more conscious of the roots of war, violence, and suffering in me, I can then ask myself, what can I do? And give myself the space for that information to show itself. As I mentioned earlier, I, there might not be anything I can do exactly as it applies to the situation in Ukraine. What I might be able to do is something in my own neighborhood, something in my own country, something in my own state, something in my own community that addresses a topic of war, violence, and suffering. It's ennobling and empowering to just do something, even if it's not directly or seemingly directly related to Ukraine or whatever the issue at hand may be. Yes. And now people have asked me, so do I think it's important to go out and demonstrate? And my response to that is yes. And what else? What can I do more practically? What can I do? How can I be of service to those who are suffering? And it's in the silence that I find that information shows itself. Because if I start deciding with my intellect what it is that needs to be done, I have to be very cautious about that. Because I have to understand that the ideas that are produced through the intellect are also informed by all that suffering that's been passed on to me through endless streams of family generations, through the collective, the, the society and culture of which I'm a part of, the consensus reality. And so to develop the ability to look at these ideas that I have from different angles of perception. That's why I think it's important to have a, a community of like-minded people that I can engage with. Not that they'll give me answers, but that through the conversation, I often gain more clarity on the notions that show themselves to me. Coming up, Claude Anchin talks more about his notion that violence is never a solution, how he works with his own mind in the face of fear, and the struggles he faced after leaving the military. That's coming up. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. 
And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. spoke before about, I think you used the phrase, you know, violence never works. I'm curious, what's your response then to the Ukrainian civilians who've been taking up arms and widely, you know, cheered for it? Yes. The phrase that I often use is that violence is never a solution. Even when it appears to work, it doesn't really work. Because if you look at on the surface of some of the claims that are being made to justify the invasion, and a lot of the rationale is being used goes back to the early 20th century and before. It's like those Bolsheviks, you know, the, the Ukraine didn't exist. The Bolsheviks came in and made Ukraine and a terrible thing. It all belongs to Russia. And it's an excuse that's used to justify violence. Now, what's happening in Ukraine at some point will stop. What will result? The residuals that are left over from that will live on in generations. And so we create victims and perpetrators. If I'm a Ukrainian soldier, then the Russian soldier looks at me as the enemy and looks at me as the perpetrator. If I'm a Russian soldier, then the Ukrainian soldier in me looks at the Russian as the perpetrator and I'm the victim. And so this whole notion of victim and perpetrator, there is this phenomena, the entitlement of the victim. So I view myself as a victim. That means I'm entitled to act out in revenge or vengeance or retribution, somehow my hands are clean. But the moment I act out in revenge or retribution, then I am, of course, the perpetrator. But I fail to recognize that. That's why it's so important to wake up. Now, when I, I say that I'm an advocate of active nonviolence, I'm not a pacifist. Active nonviolence, how that informs me is that I know in every fiber of my body, I know that I have the capacity to act in violence at any given moment. And I make the conscious choice not to. And that's, that's through speech or action. That doesn't mean that there aren't some times I don't, but I catch it much more quickly than I ever did before. And if necessary, and I had the chance to address that to whomever or whatever group or to whomever it was that that violence expressed itself, I have a chance to take responsibility for that and, and not do it. I'm pretty good at not running people off the road today, not giving people the finger, um, not screaming and yelling, and I'm pretty good at that. But that doesn't mean that sometimes I'm not caught. I'm conditioned to act in that way. So the daughter organization from the Zolto Foundation that is active in providing support for the Ukrainians who are leaving the country if I got a call that there was a need to go into Ukraine and they needed me to facilitate that, I'd go in a heartbeat, but I, I would go unarmed. I'm curious, though, just to get back to these Ukrainian civilians. Sure. Because there's an enormous amount of courage that they're demonstrating. Is, from your perspective or from a Buddhist perspective, is violence ever justifiable? I believe I read that the Dalai Lama was once asked about the 
killing of Osama bin Laden and said, yes, this is an example where actually it's okay. So, you know, I know that's a completely different Buddhist tradition. He's in the Tibetan tradition, you're in the Zen tradition. But again, the question I'm getting at is, does it make sense on some level for these civilians in Ukraine, even people who've never handled a gun before, to rise up in defense of what is clear naked aggression, unprovoked? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Doesn't mean it's a solution, but it makes sense. I understand it. In the end, it only invites more violence. Now, I don't know what the solution would be. I'm in no way pretending that I would know what the solution would be. But I do know from my own experience. Let's say, so I left the military in 1968. I was discharged out of military hospital. From that point until sometime in 1984, I carried a gun all the time, everywhere. And I carried it because I didn't feel safe. There was a point in time in 1984 where I had given away all my weapons. I still had a handgun left. I drove out onto the Tobin Bridge in Boston. I pulled over to the side. I took that handgun out and I threw it into the Charles River. When that handgun left my hand, I almost had a heart attack. Really, I was overwhelmed with fear and panic. And all the engagements I have had in war zones since, and I've been in war zones in Europe, I've been in war zones in Asia, I've been in war zones in South America. I'm unarmed and I'm in robes. I, I wear robes probably 85% of the time. I'm unarmed and I'm in robes. And it's really rather interesting how people then respond to me. It makes sense they pick up arms. I get it. It's like, all right, so I feel helpless. I feel powerless. This feels like something I can do. It's something I need to do. And I cycle this topic a lot. And because I, still I support people who are in the military. They're on active duty. I support people who have had multiple deployments, multiple combat deployments. And I understand how profoundly they've been affected, but I also understand how that makes sense to them. I just really, I'm of the firm belief that violence only gets more violence. But look, if we really wanted to stop what's going on there, I mean, we could. Are we really willing to step through that looking glass? Are we really willing to step up and say, okay, you know, this is enough. We got to stop this. Violence only gets more violence. People at some level know that. It's like the whole notion about there is no just war, there's just war. As a war correspondent, you've seen what goes on in there, the changes that take place in the people who experience combat. I just read an article where they're bringing in Syrian mercenaries. Now, Russia is bringing in Syrian mercenaries. And these are people who've been fighting in Syria, and this is what they know. So they're coming in to do what they know. I just hold steadfast. Violence is not a solution, and I make an effort to live that in my own life. I don't impose that on other folks. I say it out loud because the first precept, if we're talking about Buddhist practice, first precept, don't kill, don't let others kill, and don't accept any act of killing in the world or in my life. But that's for me to live. It's not for me to attempt to convince you to live like that. It's for me to live that way and to see how that manifests itself in my life and really to live that out loud. I have a lot of deaths on my conscience. I was a helicopter crew chief. A door gunner. I crewed uh, troop ships, slick ships, and gunships. And we could see the people we were killing. You could see them. Different from being on the ground. We could see them. And I have a body count. And I can't really articulate that. Unless someone's had that shared experience, I can say it and they can identify with it. But to really know how that feels and how one's psyche is affected by that. So if I were a civilian in Kiev, what would I do? There's an image for you. I actually, I didn't see this image. Somebody from Germany related to me. There's an image of a group of people, unarmed, in, in one of the major cities that confronted a Russian tank. Oh, I've seen that, yes. Yeah, and the tank turned away. Yes. And there's also a really powerful story from the second war. It's the Rosenstrasse. It's the story of the Rosenstrasse. As fascism was losing its grip, as Nazism was losing its grip, as Germany and, it, and its allies were being defeated in Europe, 
they began scorched earth policies. So they modified the racial laws and they gathered up all the Mischlings, what they call half-breeds, the people who had any taste of Jewish blood or Jewish spouses of German people. They gathered them up and they imprisoned them in a building called the Rosenstrasse. Their family members turned out. They came out and they just stood witness at the place where they were being held. And the numbers started to grow and started to grow. And at a certain point, one of the SS commanders called out a squad of machine gunners. They had four or five machine gunners out there. And they locked and loaded and said, if you don't go, we're going to kill you. And the people there unanimously said, without our loved ones, our life doesn't matter. Kill us. Good, kill us. And they blinked. They left. The power, the power that exists and nonviolent resistance is quite phenomenal, but it takes an incredible amount of courage. I was in Medellin, and I was invited into one of the communities there, Community 13. It's a gang-held community. Before I went in there, though, I made sure they had permission. It was okay for me to talk to them. But I go in, I walk the streets unarmed. It's a powerful statement, because whether I have a gun or not, if somebody wants to kill me, they're going to kill me. I really know that. Guns don't keep me safe. Let's talk a little bit about fear, because I think that's a pretty common response that people are having as they watch or read about the events unfolding in Ukraine. And I'm sure this is a question you've gotten before. How do you work with your own mind when you, and, and, and a few moments ago, actually, you talked about the possibility that the United States or other Western nations might intervene here and that could escalate and turn into World War III. Those words have been uttered, World War III. This kind of propuncia, this proliferation of worry, I see it in my own mind. I hear it coming out of the mouths of my friends and family. How do you work with your own mind in the face of that? Staying present, as present as I can stay, to be cautious about not being drawn into the threads that my fear might create. Because at the root of a disciplined spiritual practice, regardless of whatever you might call that, is the reality of not knowing. There's no way to know what's going to happen. But the mind has such a hard time. We're so intellectually oriented that we have such a hard time in sitting with the tension of not knowing. So what I make an effort to do is, if my mind starts getting too busy, I look at what can I do? Again, we're talking about what can I do? Some practical, what can I do right now to support me from not being seduced by my fear into attempting to gain certainty through intellectual comprehension? So I can wash the dishes working meditation. I can connect with people who are part of a support network for me. I can make myself a cup of tea. Then with that cup of tea, I can really bring my attention to all of the gestures and actions that's required in drinking that cup of tea, just to slow myself down. And in that process, to really concentrate on the breath. The breath is the foundation of life. We don't breathe, we die. And so to breathe consciously, breathing in, knowing that I'm breathing in, breathing out, knowing that I'm breathing out. Breathing in, when I breathe in, I breathe into my abdomen. I'm cautious that I'm not cutting the breath off at the diaphragm. When I breathe in, I don't follow the breath into the body. I pay attention to the precise point where it enters the body. And when I breathe out, I notice my stomach contracting, and I don't follow the breath out of the body, but rather pay attention to the precise point where the breath leaves the body. And I do that in conjunction with whatever I'm involved with. So that's meditation in action. That really supports me in not rejecting my fear, but at the same time, not allowing it to control me. In the course of answering that question, you mentioned making yourself a cup of tea, and it brought to mind for me a comment that my wife made to me over this past weekend when we did ourselves a favor and escaped our child who we love, but, you know, needed a break. And we went and stayed at a hotel and we were having this incredible brunch on Sunday morning. And I'd, I'd just be curious to hear how you would respond to this. She said, how can I enjoy this meal when I know what's happening in Ukraine right now? You know, it, it's always a challenge for me. I mean, if I'm not there and part of that exchange, it's hard for me to know exactly how I would respond. In the first monastery I lived in and studied in, it was quite intimate 
environment at the time. I had a very intimate relationship with the abbot of that monastery. Actually, what got me there is the abbot of that monastery had facilitated two meditation retreats for combat veterans of the Vietnam War, one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast. I was sort of conned into going to the one on the East Coast by a social worker I was in therapy with. So out of that retreat, I ended up going to that monastery just to sort of check it out, see what was going on. And I went to stay for a month. I ended up staying for three years. At the very beginning of that stay, there was a plan for the abbot of that monastery to come back to the U.S. to do another series of talks and retreats in the U.S. And I approached him about doing a retreat for veterans. And he agreed. He said, oh, for sure, I'll do it. Then I learned that he didn't, that plans changed. He wasn't going to do it. But I went down to his hut and give him a piece of my mind. I walked in and I started to go off on this guy. And whatever he said, I stormed out of there, slammed the door, broke it. So then I, I got about halfway up the hill. Then I started to feel guilty. So I went back, I fixed the door, I walked in, and I was still pretty angry because I felt betrayed. He said, let's have a cup of tea. So I said, okay, I'll have a cup of tea. And he lit some incense, poured some tea, and he looked at me and said, when you heal, you heal for all veterans. When you heal, you heal the suffering of your family lineages that exist in you. And I thought, what a crock of poop. It just was it just sounded like some metaphysical jabber. But I left his hut and I continued throughout the day and doing what I was doing. And it, that really started to resonate with me. I had a, an understanding, not intellectual comprehension, because it still doesn't make any sense. But I had a, a deeper understanding of the truth of what was said. That when I eat that meal, I'm eating that meal for all the people who don't have enough food to eat. I do a recitation before I eat. This food is the gift of the whole universe, the earth, the sky, and much hard work. May we live in a way that makes us worthy to receive it. May we transform our unskillful states of mind, especially our greed. May we take only foods which nourish us and prevent illness. We accept this food so that we may realize the path of practice of love, compassion, and peace. I do that before I eat any meal. And, and I reflect on all the effort it took to produce the food, to grow the food, to bring the food to that place, so that, that my eating becomes in itself itself, it becomes an act of meditation. And so I eat for all those who don't have the capacity to eat. And at the same time say, okay, so what can I do about this? And on another level, it's okay, I feel a little bit guilty about it. I think that's healthy. But it's not 100% guilt, it's some percentage guilt and a lot of gratitude. 10% guilt. That's <laughs> <laughs> got a ring to it, yes. Maybe that should be my next book. <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, I think it's quite correct. Yeah, I mean, that I have a measure of guilt, I need to pay attention to that because guilt is an informative sensation or feeling. But to not swim in it, not wallow it, not allow it to define me. It's just information. Yeah. But how, how can I use this opportunity that I have? You know, that I live in the United States provides me with some incredible opportunities that I wouldn't have if I live in other places. Because I've lived in other places. I mean, I lived in Iran for four and a half years, from 74 to 78. I saw what was going on there. I experienced it. There's a person who studies with me who has a center in Chile, in Requinoa. So I have an active relationship with a lot of people in Chile who experienced who lived through the realities of uh, the Pinochet regime and how they dealt with opposition to the way they wanted to do business. It was another autocratic, strong person regime. Some people benefit, a lot of people suffer. So that I have the opportunities that I have here, how can I take advantage of that? That I exist in this form. It's such an incredible opportunity that I'm presented with to wake up, to bring an end to suffering in my lifetime. It is possible for me to bring an end to war, violence, and suffering in my lifetime. If I'm willing to wake up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering in me and live that out loud, then there's no telling what the result of that can be. That's my commitment. Let me just clarify that for a second. Are you saying you can end war, violence, and suffering inside yourself in this lifetime, or are you saying you can end it writ large? No, no, in me first. 
However, if I look at the interconnected reality of which I'm a part of, as I heal, I heal for the entire spectrum of existence because self and existence aren't two things. Up next, we're going to explore what waking up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering inside of yourself means for the Vladimir Putin in you. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. If we really take in this interconnectedness of which you speak, yep. it's logically inexorable that we are connected to Vladimir Putin. That's true. Who is, I think, correctly cast as the, or maybe if I want to be generous, a bad guy in this scenario. How do we reckon with that? Well, let's say, here's what I challenge people. How am I like Vladimir Putin? How am I like that? Where's the Vladimir Putin in me? This challenge for people to wake up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering in them. Somebody says to me, look, I don't have a seed of violence in me. Those people scare me. I'm in no way justifying the decision that was made, the decision to come into Ukraine. I'm in no way justifying that. Am I willing to look at things from his angle of perception? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to say, where's the Vladimir Putin in me? Because the moment I make Putin the enemy, then I'm no different than him. So if I want the world to be different, I need to be willing to live differently. That in no way excuses his decisions, that no way excuses his actions, in no way diminishes the truth of what's happening there, because it's horrible what's happening there. And I have the propensity at any given moment. I've been responsible for the destruction of entire villages. And I believed, I mean, when I went into the military, I believed in the idea of it. When I stepped off the plane in Vietnam, I understood the truth of it, was, which was much different from the idea of it. That it wasn't about the films and it wasn't about the books. It wasn't the heroic myth of war that's created. This was another thing that I could die. And so my time spent in Vietnam, it was about staying alive and it was about keeping the people around me alive. And that meant killing people. It meant blowing stuff up. And I just did that as a matter of survival. There was a very little thought connected to it. After the first couple, two or three actions where death has been a part of that, we rapidly become even more desensitized than the training we receive. Because the training that we receive that prepares us for war is the training of dehumanization. 
because it's impossible to take another life without losing contact with one's own humanity. And the consequence of being so desensitized to being so removed from my own humanity were immense. One doesn't have to go into combat. One doesn't have to go into the military to be trained for that. To a large extent, we are desensitized in any number of ways to the reality around us, the suffering that exists around us. I grew up in a very small rural farming community, and the suffering that takes place in rural America is often overlooked. It's not paid attention to. The sort of services and efforts that the suffering in the cities get doesn't get to rural America. So how can I be of service to that? How can I let people know that they are important to me because I treat them as I want to be treated? Because I am not separate from them. Yeah, so am I willing to wake up to the Vladimir Putin in me? You just talked about sort of our propensity to overlook certain kinds of suffering, and, and you were referring to rural suffering in your comment, but it does remind me of something you said earlier on in this conversation, way earlier, about the fact that there's an awful lot of attention being paid to Ukraine right now, but there are wars raging in Syria, Yemen, Ethiopia, plenty of other places that we're not talking about. What do you think's going on there? In the United States, we kill between 33 and 35,000 people a year with handguns. That's a war by any other name. What is it? Every other week, there's another mass shooting. I think we have been desensitized. I think also Ukraine draws our attention more than Ethiopia, Yemen, Syria. And I think that could be a result of generally as a society and culture, the people in power. Oh, I hate to use this word, but it, it also is a statement of systemic racism that what's happening with people of color has less importance than people who look more like us. So we don't pay attention to that. And that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to me. But in order for that to be heartbreaking to me, again, I had to be willing to wake up to the nature of how I was conditioned as a young man growing up in the society and culture that I grew up in. I was conditioned to be racist. I was conditioned to be misogynistic. I don't want to be any of those things. But if I'm not willing to acknowledge that I was conditioned to be like that, then I won't see how it manifests itself in my life. I grew up in Northwest Pennsylvania. It was populated by an influx of Eastern Europeans, Polish, Slovakian, Ukrainian. And the house where I grew up in was two houses away from my high school buddy. We're still friends. We've known each other since we were five, right? His mother was the valedictorian of his class in the town where we grew up. And when it came time to pass out the awards, she had to have a non-Polish person accept the award for her because that's the kind of discrimination that these people experienced. And as another influx of immigrants came into the area, then suddenly it wasn't the Polish or the Slovakian people who were at the bottom of the rung. They were up one. So then they acted out that violence on the next group that came in so they could feel a little bit more superior. And I grew up with racist views of people who weren't like me. The Polish jokes that we told, the, the Slovakian jokes, I mean, the, just the stuff that we, God, it just, it's, it, it's heartbreaking to me. So I had to be willing to wake up to that. And I need to be willing to live in a different relation with how I'm conditioned, understanding that that conditioning doesn't go away, but I can relate to it differently. I can live in a, a more conscious relationship with it. I need to be willing to be the peace I want to see in the world and not have a preconceived idea about what that peace is. Or even if I do, be willing to allow circumstances to alter my perceptions and ideas. At the beginning of this interview, I said, at some point I want to talk about your personal story. You have expertly and very movingly woven your personal story into many of your answers. But as we now approach the end of our time together, I do want to just give you a chance to address any parts of your narrative from combatant to veteran to deep practitioner and teacher of Zen Buddhism that I may not have given you a chance to address. All I can say is that the way I experienced my life is the war before the war, the war, and the war after the war. My dad was a soldier in the Second War. He was a school teacher. 
Um, he was very well liked in the community. He was a volunteer fireman. He was on the town council. He was active in the politics of education. At one point, he was the president of the Pennsylvania State Teachers Association. But all that activity kept him away from home, and he and I lived alone. Uh, he was a single parent. What was modeled for me growing up in the community that I grew up in, where the majority of men my father's age were veterans of either the Second War or the Korean War, was the use of social anesthetics to keep that experience at a distance. My father died at the age of 53. He died of a massive heart attack in his sleep. When I heard that he died, I knew that it was his lifestyle that killed him. My father drank alcoholically, and he had a horrible diet. He smoked two and a half, three packs of cigarettes a day. All of that was not only a product of the disease of addiction that he had, but it was a way to attempt to keep all of that suffering under the blanket of social anesthetics. That's what was modeled for me. So growing up, I adopted those kinds of circumstances to give me any chance of learning how to live at peace with my unpeacefulness. I had to stop taking intoxicants and I had to stay stopped. And I just had to. There's no way around that. So when I engage with people, I, if they want what, I, what they think I have, <laughs> I never know what that is. But if they want what I think I have, then I say, okay, from this Buddhist perspective, you need to be willing to stop taking intoxicants and stay stopped. You need to commit yourself to not killing. And a way to do that is to stop eating meat, fish, and poultry, to not support institutions of killing. Um, just These are just general obvious steps. You need to be willing to sit twice a day, and you need to be willing to engage in a group of like-minded people who are practicing this. And I think that grew out of the fact that I was forced to be such an independent person. The childhood I had it was... I had to decide for myself. I was taking care of the house at 12. I was cooking for myself. I was cleaning, doing my laundry. I was doing all of that at 12. And my family became the community around me. And I learned certain survival techniques that given a perspective that's more aware, more conscious, have helped me to carry the message into communities that have been decimated by suffering and say that things can be different if you want it to be. Outside may not look different, but our relationship to that can change if we want it to. We can, we can arrive at a place of peace with our unpeacefulness. I would love to have you reference anything you've put out online or other ways that people can reach you. So please talk about the books and any other resources. Sure, thank you. I had the privilege to have a book published. It's available through Shambhala Publications. The title of it is it At Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. I was very afraid to have this book published because I know that people create certain narratives around their war experience and they hold that as an absolute truth for everyone. And if anything challenges that narrative, they want to extinguish it. And so I was anxious, but I went ahead and did it anyway. And then just recently, there's been another book published through Oakwood Publishing, and the title of the book is Bringing Meditation to Life. And these books are available through all of the online places. If people are interested in the Zolto Foundation and in the work that the foundation does, if they want to know more about me, they can go online at www.zolto.org. And also, if people want to be in contact with me, I am available through the website. They can reach me and I do answer my emails when I get them. And also on the website, every Sunday, I, I do this question and response session online. It's open to anyone who wants to come and they're all recorded and released this podcast. And they are with uh, German and Spanish translation because there are Salto communities in South America and in Europe. Claude Anchin, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you for giving us so much time and more. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks again to Claude Unchin Thomas. Really appreciated him coming on. Thank you as well to the folks who work incredibly hard on this show. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. Also, everybody over at Ultraviolet Audio, the folks who do our audio engineering. We'll see you in a couple days with a fresh episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.